I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch is what the French call les incompetents. Hey, team. Hey, Uh, team. We are doing a maybe controversial movie today, a divisive film. You guys keep uh, saying that. Yeah, we're going to talk about it, and it's going to be great because ideally when people have a differing viewpoint of uh, a movie that you do or any piece of art, really, the ideal way to share that is from a half-remembered conversation the last Christmas that you had with a few people from a viewpoint that you don't believe in. So, it's <laughs> I feel like their uh, their beliefs about this film are going to be represented fairly, <laughs> not combined with all my other uh, personal prejudices that yeah. I've thought over the past month. We, we promise if you don't like the movie today, which is Home Alone, we, we definitely won't be doing a bunch of straw man arguments yeah. that we're going to burn down. Um, uh, now that we're going to we're, we're not only going to burn them down, we're going to have them slip on micro machines. We're going to throw paint cans in their faces. <laughs> uh, we're going to throw them right out of a third story window. Uh, we'll but and feather them. We're, we're doing Home Alone 3, though, right? Because that's what I watched. Yeah, oh, yeah. Home Alone that's, 3. That inexplicably has to do with North Korea and microchips. I don't think the kid is home alone at any point in that movie from what I remember seeing parts of it on TV. But anyways, before we get any further. Are you referring to the fact that he has a pet lizard? I don't remember. I don't remember. We love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and we cover a month's worth of films based on that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. And this month is it's the first week of a new month. It's kind of a month that we've avoided doing for the last three years of this podcast. Uh, Not for any particular reason, but because we wanted to be different and edgy and interesting. So even though Peter and I, as we've expressed on a few episodes, are actually huge fans of Christmas and Christmas movies, we're like, whoa, slow your roll. We're not just going to give you Christmas movies. So I think our first December, our theme was horror horror Christmas movies. Like, we got close. And uh, the next year was Shane Black Christmas, which again, kind of kind of grazes the surface of a holiday movie. Um, and now we're just going balls in. <laughs> and we're doing uh, jingle bells, jingle balls. That uh, common and, term, we're going balls in. We're going, <laughs> not deep. They're not, nope. uh, yeah, they're all surface area. So they don't really get, they don't really penetrate that deep. But we're going balls in to do uh, Christmas classics of various ages. I think our concept here was picking movies that were probably our favorite Christmas movie at some point in our life. So that is represented this week by Home Alone, uh, which was definitely a huge movie for myself, uh, which came out when I was seven. Peter, when you were negative one, I think. Uh, and And then Nightmare Before Christmas, which is a classic, like, teenager favorite type Christmas movie. Um high school, college, and then It's a Wonderful Life, which has kind of became my favorite Christmas movie and one of my favorite movies of all time as an adult. 
Uh, and then we're going to be doing rounding out with a Christmas special on some uh, holiday uh, TV classic. So, but this is where it all begins. It begins with Home Alone. Our guest, as you heard, is Ethan Warren. He's a third time guest uh, of this podcast uh, in general and two time guest uh, with the full crew of podcast hosts. So I'd say two and a half overall. Uh, but Ethan, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience if they haven't heard your previous episodes before? Uh, well, my name is Ethan Warren. You uh, probably know me as the legendary guest on the two best ever episodes of, of We Love to Watch. They are uh, excellent episodes. Uh, yeah. All kidding aside, and they're uh, and they're uh, and they're very well listened to. So are they? Well, that's good. Your family and friends must really like to listen to you talk. Yeah. So I, I did uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, and then I did Bram Stoker's Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> and now Home Alone. So I feel like I, I keep coming in for these really solid like genre things. Like I did the zombie thing, I did the vampire thing, and now it's the Christmas thing. Which you know, the, the greatest monster of all is is the holiday season. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And this was one where normally we give guests a choice of here's some themes we're doing. Uh, but Peter and I kind of struggled to find a guest for this one because we were afraid to just offer it out in public because there's a, we know there's a lot of people, including uh, some former guests of the show, that fucking hate this movie. Uh, and we didn't – we love to watch. We It's okay if you don't like a movie that we're covering, but we, we're not actively seeking people to shit on a movie That's to talk about. That's to me. And, and we'll, yeah. we'll get into it, I'm sure. Because you, you reached out to me and, and you said, do you like this movie? And I said, like, I grew up in the 90s. Like, I'm, of course, I like Home Alone, but I hadn't seen it in <laughs> probably since the 90s. And, and so I went in a little apprehensive to rewatch it. And it's – it's just it's just, it's a nice movie. It's yeah. a nice movie. It's very delightful. How can you it's not delightful. like this nice movie? <laughs> Ethan sounds like my mom about every girl I dated in high school. She's a nice girl. Why don't you marry that girl? Why did no. you two break up? Why isn't this on the AFI's top 100 movies? It's a nice movie. It's a <laughs> they don't like nice movies on the <laughs> AFI. <laughs> but yes, uh, so and and I was I, I think I'd seen you post something on Twitter, and I'm like maybe oh, he likes Home Alone. That's right, I did. I I did a uh, I posted on Twitter uh, that I wanted to see a, um, a a sequel to Home Alone in which uh, Kevin and Marv uh, get back together and do a. Um, what do you call it? Like a my dinner with my dinner Andre with style, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> where they they get together and just have a like two hour real time conversation <laughs> about like the psychological fallout <laughs> of these two movies. Because I saw photos of of Macaulay Culkin and Daniel Stern, and I was like, these two guys, they were hanging out. Yeah. Well, they just they just both have uh, you know aged a great deal as we all have since the 90s and i just i couldn't help seeing it as kevin and marvin like these guys they just look so haunted so uh well one and you uh ethan besides uh last time you were on we talked about a movie that you had just released which peter and i both enjoyed quite a bit and i believe yes. you also have some new exciting news uh related to your career to share yeah um so yeah my my uh debut as a writer director uh west of her uh which is a little micro budget indie that uh I shot with a small crew, um, God, back in like 2013, uh, it finally came out this year and I'm really proud and happy about that. It's on uh, all the usual sort of streaming services. And then, um, since then I've been writing for Brightwall Dark Room, which is, uh, this really cool and unique site, uh, for film criticism where we do like long form 
uh, analysis that that has kind of a a more personal or creative bent. Yeah, uh, about two three weeks ago now, I got promoted to uh, associate editor over there, so I'm I'm on the other side of the wall. I you know I tried to not say it, but I'll say it. I'm in the room where it happens. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you just had two puns in a row. You're on the other side of the wall. Right. And you're in the room where it happens. Which is just going to, it just dated this podcast, you know. Yeah, you're, you're no longer, <laughs> uh, you're no longer struggling yeah. in the dark. That, but your pieces on the site are are really lovely. Um, yeah, I was I about to say. I hope uh, I hope next time you come. Uh, I hope next time you come on here, you start really producing some shit because uh, <laughs> unfortunately, everything you write is fantastic. I love reading it. Uh, we loved your movie. I feel like we're just brown nosing you coming on our podcast. So uh, I would like it if if you really start crapping the bed with your next project, so we can. We can we Peter and I can still give you praise, but this time not mean it as much. I will I will do my very best, and it's it's always entirely possible. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no pressure to shit the bed, but you know. To be clear. We will both be very nice about it. We're gonna be like, it's great, but the amount of sincerity coming from us hurts a little bit, so we'd like to Feel like we're uh, patronizing you a little bit. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll create something absolutely terrible just to show my love for you guys. Thank you uh, so much. Is that why you're appearing on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So uh, before we get into Home Alone, I think we'll probably talk a little bit about Home Alone 2 as well because I believe, Ethan, you also watched that. I did, and I also I, I did I did make this game. Whenever you want to get yes. into that, that's yeah, that's what I'm transitioning to. So oh, okay. once again, the quizmaster Ethan has has brought us a quiz. I'm excited to see what it is, but it's Home Alone. Is it about the novelization? No, that's something oh. else. We'll we'll talk about the oh, novelization. We have we have a lot to talk about. I have so much to cover. Um, no, I I uh, have made a quiz. So that's my favorite thing to do when I come on the show is make these little these little quizzes for you guys, which they're not really like trivia. They're more like guessing games because my questions are always <laughs> super weird and hard. Um, <laughs> but uh, so my, my first idea was to do something on um, egregiously creepy stuff that happens in movies John Hughes wrote. Uh, but it's hard to narrow that down. <laughs> That's like a 50 question <laughs> quiz. Right. So I decided, uh, to go for just, just general Christmas movie quiz, uh, movie and TV, because like I said, I did the zombie one. I did the vampire one Christmas. We're just doing these real clean, you know, genre based quizzes. So whenever you guys are ready to get into it, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. It's about me. bad okay. parenting. <laughs> uh, so Aaron, you, you won the coin toss this, Great. this time. So, uh, you want to go first or second? Um, I'm going to go first and do I get to keep the coin? Yeah. Uh, so your question, which of these... What is the quiz? Should we know what the quiz is about or oh, it's, did it's you just... say it and I wasn't paying attention? You weren't paying attention. It's just Christmas great. movies. Oh, great. <laughs> so <laughs> Christmas movie quiz. Here we go. Which of these sitcoms, which are not movies, <laughs> did not have a Christmas Carol episode? Because you know, like every TV show has, has the episode where... Yeah. The character is visited by three spirits. So I'm going to give you four shows and you have to tell me which one did not do an episode. Okay. Based on A Christmas Carol. The shows are Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Okay. Rugrats. Beavis and Butthead. And The Jetsons. I'm, I'm pretty sure 50% of all Aqua Teen Hunger Force uh, episodes are Christmas Carol based. Where someone from the future comes and yells at one of them. That's fair. Uh, at least the... <laughs> 
so, the, so I'm not. I think that's good. Uh, I never watched Rugrats. What were the other two? Beavis and Butthead and the Jetsons. I think I'm going to go Rugrats. You're right, Pete. Did you watch Rugrats? I did, and I couldn't remember one either. Uh, Tommy was a Tommy was a, had a Christian dad and a Jewish mom, so there were a lot of like just general holiday specials, but I couldn't remember that one. It also like the premise of the episode is that someone is doing terrible things and needs to be shown that he's going to end up in hell. Feels like that's a little rough for a show about <laughs> toddlers. Well, so the giveaway um, for me was just that Rugrats is is a very very Jewish show. <laughs> Yes, it is. I've never seen an episode. Like, very, like, overtly Jewish, and so... That's where I learned about the Maccabees and a Mm -hmm. bunch of other Jewish, uh, you know, uh, key mythological stories from the Bible was not from actually reading the Bible, it was from fucking Rugrats. And as we know, all the Jetsons, Southern Baptist. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Pete, here's a question for you. Uh, wait, Aaron, did you get that question right? You said Rugrats, right? I did, yeah. No, okay. I got, yeah, I got it right. That's great. Pete, it's up to you. So, uh, A Christmas Story, you're familiar with this film? Oh, I am. So, A Christmas Story had, uh, several straight-to-TV sequels, uh, that had just unbelievably stupid, crazy names. <laughs> so <laughs> I know I'm, about a couple of them. Okay. I'm gonna give you four titles, and you have to tell me which is not a real sequel to a christmas story okay three of these are real and one is not ollie hop noodles haven of bliss <laughs> president <laughs> roosevelt ruined my easter the star-crossed romance of josephine kaznowski so wait only one of these are is, are is not real is fake yeah and oh. no, and number four a christmas story two colon official sequel good fucking luck bud <laughs> kaznowski number three no, incorrect. Uh, I made up President Roosevelt ruined my Easter. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're really good at coming up with uh, specific references, so I assumed that it was just you showing off. But yeah, <laughs> you 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 did a good job there. You really buried it in there. All right, Aaron, you're up, and yeah. this is here's an it's a wonderful life one for you. Great, a, a film I gather you're fond of. So the FBI uh, flagged it's a wonderful life as as a dangerous film. Yep, sounds like the FBI from the 40s. Yep. And so, uh, which of these four reasons is the real reason? Did they flag it because Jimmy Stewart was a suspected communist? Because it glamorized suicidal ideation? Because uh, the uh, reckless toying with Christian iconography would trigger protest from church groups? Or because it would make bankers look unsympathetic and undermine capitalism? Oh, man. It feels like it's got to be number four. I mean, all of them seem somewhat likely, but I'm going to go number four. You're correct. They were terrified that this movie would bring down capitalism, apparently. And it really should have. I mean, we're going to get into it in a couple weeks, but uh, I don't know how people who grew up with that movie became bad people. It feels like they should have learned a little bit more from that. It's not too late. Movie, yeah. Okay, Pete, I got another question for you, and it's also about It's a Wonderful Life. We got back to back. So, on the set of It's a Wonderful Life, Lionel Barrymore didn't believe that Donna Reed really was a farm girl. So, she had to prove it to him. And which of these four things did she do (laughs) in real life to to prove to Lionel Barrymore that she really was a born and raised farm girl? Did she? No matter what, the answer is going to be super gross. (laughs) (laughs) Did she call a square dance, churn him some butter, 
drive a tractor, or milk a cow. Ooh. And this was on It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. Um, Drive a tractor seems the most plausible. Is that your answer? That's my answer. Incorrect. She milked a cow. I think cow. milk a cow. She milked yeah. a cow. Okay, because I figure I know how expensive it is to have animals on set, like, or near the set or anything like that. I assumed that, like, there weren't actually just cows around for that long. That's I know, but it's 1940, like, four. Like, having a tractor on set is probably, like, the equivalent <laughs> of having a, a fucking space shuttle. <laughs> so, I, I uh, neglected to ever look up more context on these questions, and so I just like to imagine that she, like, brought a cow, like, she just showed up on set the next day and was like, Lionel, get over here. <laughs> She's like, hey, fucker, look what I got. I brought this cow from home. I brought the cow. You got a bucket? Did he have to Did he have to lay underneath the cow as she milked into his mouth? So, you know, I also had that image in my head, but I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> and that's a difference between oh, it's you and you me. Have, um, what, do you call that? what do you call that thing? Um, dignity and respect for yourself. There what? we go. All right, Aaron, you're up. Dr. Seuss's widow. Uh, created a list of four actors that she would accept as uh, the Grinch before she would grant Ron Howard the rights to make that Christmas classic. Yeah. So the list uh, had Jim Carrey was on it. Uh, and and which of the following Seems four like actors <laughs> was not uh, a, a Dr. Seuss's widow approved choice for the Grinch? So here's four actors. One of them I made up as her choice. Uh, Robin Williams, Gary Oldman, Jack Nicholson or Dustin Hoffman? Robin Williams seems like a gimme, which probably means it's the fake one because I overthink quizzes. I feel like Jack Nicholson probably. Who is the second one? It's Gary Oldman and Dustin Hoffman is what you're down to. I feel like Gary Oldman would just be a little too specific for Dr. Seuss's widow if she also thought Jim Carrey would make a good choice. So you're you're correct, and uh, he's the best of those choices. Gary Oldman would be a great Grinch. Oh yeah, of course he would. I think Jim Carrey now would make a really good uh, Grinch when he's really sad. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and he's not as manic. Uh, I think Robin Williams currently would be a bad choice. <laughs> Can you imagine Jack Nicholson under all that makeup, though? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, he, he'd sit in that that chair for four hours, no problem. Yeah, uh, just imagine. Let's just do a version of that. That all it is is just uh, changing the color coding, and as good as it gets, and the Grinch is just making racist comments to all the people in town, and uh, calling uh, his neighbor uh, various homophobic slurs. And you're just like <laughs> this version of the Grinch is very gritty. You're not that far off. You bring up an interesting point. Do you think as good as it gets is a secret remake of Doctor Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Uh, now that I've said it out loud as a lark, not that far off. It's not Helen Hunt, little Cindy Lou Who. Yes. Or in the remake of The Grinch, uh, doesn't he end up falling in love with the girl he loved as a kid? I have not seen that movie since it came out. That would be, that would be the Helen Hunt. Okay. Great Kinnear's Max, who's long suffering. (laughs) No, there's a a dog in the movie. (laughs) There's already a dog in the movie that gets that gets abused and dropped down a, a, a whatever a laundry chute or a trash. Yeah, chute. but the Grinch is very nice to the dog. The Grinch, on the other hand, is not so nice to Max and or Greg Kinnear. <laughs> That's true. Um, All right, we're gonna we got it. We got to keep this thing moving. I'm knocking yes. off two questions. <laughs> we're we're gonna call this the last question of the quiz for Pete. Okay. Uh, which. <laughs> I mean, he can't win, right? Because he's gotten zero right and I've, I'm three for three. There is a bonus question because there always is with me. Oh, bonus question. So, 
taken my victories. Which <laughs> this is just very specific to something that fascinates me. So there's there's a uh, screenwriting book called Save the Cat, and it's the most mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know obsessed over screenwriting book of the past decade. It's written by Blake Snyder, uh, who was the screenwriter of Blank Check, a movie I would love to talk about later this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has unfortunately passed away. It's a, it's a great book. It has kind of messed up, uh, you know, the way we uh, messed up our relationship with screenwriting. In this screenwriting manual, Blake Snyder cites one movie that did not exist at the time of his writing as the greatest pitch he had ever heard in his life. The whole book, every couple of pages, he's just like, and guys, there's this fucking movie pitch. Seriously, just sit down because this is the best fucking movie. When this comes out, it's going to just, Hollywood is over. (laughs) Which movie is it? (laughs) Is he obsessed with Christmas with the Cranks, The Santa Claus, Four Christmases, or Fred Claus? Oh my God. I think I um, here's the problem. I I've definitely heard this before, but now that you named all those, three of those are the same. Like have the same <laughs> level of acclaim in my mind. Um, so the only it's, good it's thing tough. about Fred Claus is that it has uh, ludicrous. Uh, Ludicrousness is uh, on the soundtrack for it. Um, I'll say, I will say, Fred Claus. I think it's Fred Claus too. The no, answer get is. Not Fred Claus. <laughs> the answer is Four Christmases with uh, with Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn. Uh, a movie that I saw on a plane and loved and don't remember anything about. <laughs> it's directed Why? by the same guy that did uh, Fistful of Quarters, right? Uh, the King of Kong guy. Yeah. 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 Right? Oh, yeah. I did the subtitle. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Not Steve Weeby. Seth Gordon? Yeah. That sounds right. The other one he's obsessed with is Ride Along, the, uh, the movie that they ended up making with Kevin Hart. These are the two Ugh. movies. These these were just pitches at the time. And it took that long to get to it because Save the Cat's been around for a long for time. A long it's time. a bad idea as a screenwriter. I remember reading screenwriting books and they would talk about stuff like Tootsie and Ghostbusters as like examples of like perfect screenplays. But those movies had been out and well received. There's nothing worse to like potentially ruin your whole career is to like plant your flag in some movie that hasn't been made. And then those movies end up being apparently... Four Christmases and Ride Along. I'd like to see him, his his other ideas that, like, he thought about including in the book, where he's, like, seriously, like, you don't understand, it's a tale of two kitties. It's gonna be huge. <laughs> I, I'm gonna knock out my bonus ground, because it's not good. I do, I want to do my other two Yes, questions. do it, do it, do I, it, do, I, it, do it. All right, we'll do I rapid fire. Talk. I mean, okay, yeah, Aaron, Peter can't. back up. Great. No, he can't. <laughs> so... Why did Daryl Zanuck insist that Miracle on 34th Street had to be released in May? Daryl's Attic? Yeah. So, the producer of the original Miracle on 34th Street insisted I knew that. that Didn't need to explain to me. Thank you for explaining to the audience. Yes. (laughs) Did he insist that this classic Christmas film be released in May because he lost a bet with Jack Warner because it was his daughter's birthday in May and she begged because people only go to the movies when it's hot. Or because there were already too many Christmas movies in December. Man, all of those seem likely. It feels like old-timey producer, like, I'm going to go with B. I'm going to go with his daughter's birthday was in May. That is incorrect. And the one I thought sounded the most insane. (laughs) Well, yeah, but it's also the 40s. Like, ah, my girl gets what she wants and I'm a big-time producer. This was also before, like, they could hire big market research firms to give them stats on release dates. Daddy's getting you Santa Claus. And it it was all based off a hunch. It was sort of like how they solved murders back then. (laughs) 
Everything uh, so was hunch based. No, the the real answer is because people only go to the movies when it's hot. So we'll I thought that might be it too, just night. because yeah. Like what do they do? Driving their horse and buggy. Uh, I understand how when cars were invented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hit me with that other bonus question. This Hit is me this with is your bonus this is just question. Your, this is your last real question. Hit okay. me with your real question. <laughs> who was Who was the studio's first choice for the Sinbad role in Jingle All the Way? John Ratzenberger, Joe Pesci, Will Smith, or Vanilla Ice? Oh my okay. god. I think I know the answer. Bear in mind there's no pressure because you can't win. Uh Joe Pesci. It's Joe Pesci, you got one. Yep, yep. I got one. So and how many points is that worth? That's uh seventy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's okay. All mine were worth 80. I'm at 240. <laughs> uh, and and with that, it just seems like that's a good transition. So Home Alone, Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about Home Alone. <laughs> let's talk about The Home most famous Alone. Joe Pesci movie of all time. Uh, I believe that's me. So, uh, this Christmas, take the whole family to a heartwarming tale about the origins of Stand Your Ground Laws. Yeah, the one I came up with is, um, it's very original. It's, uh, who will survive and what will be left of them? Uh, Peter! If you, this 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 is probably going to be the quickest plot recap you do because everyone knows the recap to, to Home Alone. Yeah, Home Alone. It's a movie I assume everyone's seen, but it's uh, the story of Kevin McAllister, uh, youngest child in a Chicago suburb family. Um, he is precocious. He is very smart for his age, uh, and he has a big fight with his family on the eve before a uh, transcontinental. Christmas vacation. Basically, they're going to go visit some uh, distant relatives or, you know, relatives in uh, France. And there's a million kids. You don't know until like two thirds in the movie which kids are actually his siblings and which aren't. Yeah. Um, you don't find out until the end. That's the big twist ending when when you find out which ones come home. You're like, oh, you <laughs> you're the ones who live there. On yeah, there's a picture that's a there's a picture frame like an hour into the movie, and you're like, oh, I get it. And they were the ones being particularly mean to him. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, um, by the way, the background picture work watching this in HD is is beautiful. I don't know if they meant to, but they have a ton of pictures of the family, like in typical like. Uh, junior high poses of like buzz in the background. Very good work, whoever's the set designer of this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I imagine in theaters this movie looked amazing, but we all watched it on VHS and crappy CRTVs our entire gr- yep. life growing up. So we didn't notice details like that, right? It's the same thing with when I saw Blade Runner on Blu-ray for the first time. I was like, you're like, oh, that's Harrison Ford. He's also in the <laughs> I was like, holy shit, is that Harrison Ford in this movie? I just thought it was some hobo that was wandering oh, through Oh, Han scenes. Solo's in this movie. <laughs> so there's a million kids. Yeah. And uh, they, they're they leaving for the trip. They're counting heads. A neighbor kid happens to be by, so the head count gets fucked up. 
everyone leaves because they're they also woke up late for their flight. As far as we know, the person doing the head count isn't part of the family either. We never see her again. I don't know. I, I don't know. She's, she's like some random person Jennifer, in charge of counting kids. She's gone. Yeah, they were like Jennifer Connolly. You are in charge. Um, but uh, because of that, they all head off to the airport, head off to O'Hare International Airport, and fly uh, to France and leave Kevin, who is sleeping in the attic because of a, uh, a fight with his mother. And he thought that he had sent his family away. He was so mad that his parents, before they left, that he said, um, you know, I wish you guys would never come back. Or I, I wish you, I wish you say, would disappear. Yeah, I wish you would disappear. And then at first he's very excited about it. Uh, it's, you know, spring break for an eight-year-old. Um, and he, uh, you know, he, he does everything he wants to do in the house. He eats ice cream, watches all the movies he's not supposed to, yada, yada. Gradually, he starts to gain a sense of responsibility. He's buying real dinners for himself. Um, but throughout this entire time, there are two bandits uh, played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. Uh, they're the wet bandits, uh, soon to be the sticky bandits, but we'll get to that. Uh, Daniel Stern understood branding. Yeah, exactly. Daniel Stern was a early version of modern marketing i think he was basically the don draper of this film but he uh the, those two, the, the wet bandits are preying on all these nice suburban homes while everyone else is off on vacation and they basically just keep trying to get into this house until the third act when kevin's resolve he's taken on a sense of responsibility a sense of bravery he sort of chucky finstered himself uh, would you say that he thinks hey this is my house I have to defend it. He says, this is my house. I have to defend it. And then the third act is a siege movie, essentially. It's it's like Assault on Precinct 13, um, the third act of Skyfall, that kind of thing. He plants all these traps. He seems to be able to premeditate where people, th- these two wet bandits are going to go. And in what um, order. And in what order. Um, and the wet bandits are unde- undeterred by this. They just keep chasing him, chasing him, chasing him until they uh, they corner him in a neighbor's house. Kevin is saved by a... The child molester th- who lives up <laughs> next door based on the conversation they have at the church, which now... Yeah. It had a lot of red flags for me this time it's, around. I, I think I, I think there was a pretty shitty recap because I was rushing, but... It's a it's a pretty well well put together script. Like oh they my God, yes. they establish they establish that the the guy next door is terrifying and he's terrifying he's terrifying and then Kevin gives him a shot at being a human being and then he becomes the hero in the third act where he helps Kevin save the day. He takes out the fucking wet bandits and uh, they get arrested. And as this is all happening, Kevin's family obviously realizes they don't have him and is trying to rush back to get him. His mom gets there first and they have their wonderful reunion. Uh, She went through an insane amount of work to try and get home. She had to ride with a bunch of polka players, uh, with John Candy. She had to go through, take all these flights, sell certain personal items to try and get on these flights. And she finally makes it home just in time for Christmas and 10 minutes behind her, five minutes behind her, the rest of the family manages to make it. And it's uh, Kevin has his family back. He doesn't wish that they disappeared anymore. Sweet, uh, wonderful Christmas for Kevin, who thought he had, you know, lost everything. Um, and yeah, that's that's Home Alone. Guys, I'm going to be real. I, I got choked up at the ending this time. <laughs> I did too. I, I I did too. As a kid, I remember just I remember being like kind of like, 
like, oh man, I hope Kevin get his family back. And then I went through like a 15 year period where this movie meant nothing to me. And then I watched it last night and I was like, he just wants his family. <laughs> um, you guys, you guys both have, you guys have both have a uh, uh, young children as well. So like, I imagine that like that hair trigger for crying is like even more hair triggery. Oh, totally. I mean, that's that's all. That's what it was about. Is is just when the the mother and child are reunited. Like that. Just, I, I think it just hits this instinctual button for me as a parent of like you know, there's the waterworks. Like they're back together. Actually, that part worked better for me before I had kids because I feel like these parents are not good. I think they're bad parents. So <laughs> in a way let's that, get into I, that let's get into that right now. That's another, yeah, let's, that, let's is, that is a big, that is a central complaint in this movie is, is people not buying the plausibility that the family could leave them behind. Well, but I just think they're bad parents all the way through. Like even before they leave them behind. And again, I still really like the movie. It uh, we'll, we'll probably get into a little bit about how, uh, cause I'm actually curious, Peter, when you connected to this, cause I think, Ethan and I were alive and around when it was released. It was like the biggest thing in the world for at least for like kids my age uh, when I was in first grade when this movie came out. Yeah, I do, it, this is the first time I've watched it since I've had kids. I haven't seen it in a while. It was a lot of like, oh, they're just kind of like they're kind of dicks to this kid. And I understand that like you get frustrated and you're going on a trip. But like so, yeah. So, Ethan, as someone has kids, it was kind of this is the first time I watched it since I've had kids. Um, and I did even before they leave him behind, which I feel like is some pretty good criticism of how careless they were. But I get it. Uh, it is a pretty tight screenplay. It sets it up really well. But even before all that, as someone who's like really working as my kid gets older to make sure that I'm parenting them in a way that's not like punishing them by way of like revenge for ways they've wronged me. But like trying to sit with them and help them learn lessons and grow as a person. And like you read all these parenting things about like like what probably my parents and a lot of other parents did, which is like literally just like you, you pissed me off. I want to punish you as like a little mini revenge, but not like behavioral reinforcement. And this movie is full of like, I kind of hate my kid. He sucks. And I, I, I want to see him suffer for ruining our time. So even that part of it, like as a parent was, was like, Oh yeah, these are not great parents. So I was not necessarily seeing it as a parent on that level but what i what i found really interesting about this first like 20 minutes before they leave him behind is he is objectively the least awful of the like yeah. 25 children in this house that's another and, great point well but that's that's what i think is is actually sort of a feature not a bug kevin kevin essentially does nothing wrong at the beginning everything that he yeah all the trouble he causes is totally provoked by all of his other, yeah. you know, siblings and cousins. Who are, <laughs> He's just trying to get back. They're leaving just, tomorrow. No one's helped him back. These are just trash children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Kevin, Kevin is singled out and just absolutely sort of, you know, put on blast. And the movie is from his perspective. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think that's really interesting that like kids would kids would just instinctively respond to that like yeah. you know it's it's always not fair the world is always just piling on you despite the fact that you did nothing wrong and so it's it's this very subjective 20 minutes i think that just sort of ground us in in kevin's sort of way of viewing the world because yeah otherwise the way they treat him is just <laughs> egregiously terrible. <laughs> it is really important to to sit there for a second. This movie is most definitely from Kevin's perspective. Yes. And and that subjectivity actually makes the movie more enjoyable. 
I'll get into later why I identified with Kevin so much. But yeah, one reason is that he's very like likable and charming. But um, the other reason is because the movie is from his perspective. There's even a really great thing where they do like face bubbles of things that people have already said to him. Oh, yeah, that's great. Right. Two, yeah. two or I think like two out of three of them are things that we've already seen, but they were re-recorded for the face bubbles. So they were to they be more aggressive more, and mean. Yeah, more aggressive and meaner. And uh, one of them was uh, Look Buzz you saying, did, you little I'm going jerk. To, and one of them was Buzz saying, I'm going to feed you to my tarantula. And that's um, and that's not something we've seen him say already. And you have to wonder, like, this is from this is from Kevin's perspective. Is that Kevin just being scared of Buzz and just like coming up with this line or whatever? Uh, I f- yeah, I also feel like Buzz could have easily said yeah, that. Buzz is an asshole. Point. Buzz but is the, the worst. But the- but yeah, I wanted to park there real quick because that's super important. The movie is from Kevin's perspective, and that I think changes your your viewpoint of the movie quite a bit when you're watching it. I think I think you're 100 percent right. I would also just say that even uh, the mom reacts in a way that you would expect a loving parent to react. The brothers and the sisters and the dad don't really like. Even at the end, when the dad finally gets home, uh, he's like, "Hey, bud." Like, tossles his hair, says, good to see you, and then wants to go figure out if there's something to eat. Like, like he barely he barely acknowledges. How you that, doing, champ? Yeah, how you doing, champ? Oh, good, Kevin, you're here. Perfect. Right where we left you at the house. Hey, we got to go grocery shop, but there's no milk in this house. Like, this was clearly written by, yeah, this was clearly written by somebody that was from... It was written by someone that was from the generation previous where yeah. dads were a little bit more isolated from the emotional uh, upbringing of children and the child rearing of children. Um, whereas now dads are expected to be just as emotionally involved, just as connected as we are. But like, I think it was written by boomers. It was written by yeah. Chris Columbus. Yeah. John by Hughes. Hughes. Oh, sorry. John Hughes. Chris, Columbus, yeah. this, Chris Columbus did not write it. John Hughes wrote it. Um and John Hughes is very much from, like, boomer generation and certain, like, sort of 50s, 60s era shit transferred onto the 80s because of that. And again, I was I was Kevin's age when this movie came out. So, like, and actually, I'm very curious to, to hear this from your perspective, Peter. So, like, the parental attitudes were very similar to what I grew up with. So, I actually don't find this movie not realistic. I'm just – and or, like, it, it's detracting yes. from the movie. I just feel like it. watching this, I have a newfound respect that these are not – the best parents were witnessing in a way I didn't quite get before I had kids. Like, it just wasn't something I considered. Here's what's interesting. So, even though I was the same age as Kevin, he's, what, eight in this movie. I guess I was seven when this movie came out. I really never identified with him that much. And it's very interesting, Peter, that you say that you did because I am the oldest. Uh, I'm not just the you oldest were in life. I was Buzz, yes. Um, Presumably Buzz is the oldest. I don't know who in the family is the eldest. I don't know. Buzz might be older than Catherine O'Hara. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so I was not only the oldest, though, among my family. I was the oldest on both uh, side of my family's our cousins. So I was like the oldest, oldest. Oh, you were um, the elder god. I was the elder god. So not only did I not have the experience of like being kind of the one that I'm looking up at everyone in my family as they're getting ready for a trip and forgetting about me and all have their own agency and doing their own stuff. But I didn't have this, that experience at like family reunions and Christmases either because I was always the oldest, no matter which side of the family I was, no matter who I was around. So like I really didn't have this perspective. So as a result, like that is so baked into Kevin's character that even though I loved this movie, um, I didn't 
identify with him. And it's not surprising, Peter, as the youngest of four, that you did. So this movie came out, you said, um, around when I was born, which is true. 1990, um, yeah. It came out in 1990, which it came out in November of 1990. So actually pretty perfectly primed for the holiday season, right? Four months before I was born. I was born in March of 1991. So you can pretty much rule out that you were not conceived to this movie. <laughs> Preview screening. Yeah, no, I was probably like like we established previously. I like every other millennial was was probably conceived to uh, Moondance by Van Morrison, and that fact haunts me. I don't think we can day. rule out that you were conceived to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the butt scene. <laughs> I would never rule something like that out. I'm too I'm too good of an investigator. Okay. Um, <laughs> Put it on the dartboard. Um, <laughs> so this is one of the movies that we've done so far. I, I'm trying to think like what else apart from Ghostbusters 2. I, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it. It just got laced into my DNA from a very early age. I was nurtured with this movie. My family was very big on Christmas. It still is. Uh, and very big on the holidays. And this movie was something that I saw. Before I, I, I probably could form memories, like the every line, every sort of musical drop is like formed into my my consciousness. Do you do you ever have that with old movies you've seen a million yeah. times where like the, the certain way that the certain texture of a sound just like hits yep. you in a way? I have yeah. that with pretty much every sound in this movie. Yes. Like that did mean that I had a period where I was like very skeptical of this movie because like I I do you and I, Aaron, both do nostalgia audits. Do you do that, Ethan? Where you're like, I've I've liked this movie for too long. I need to kind of look at it with fresh eyes. Or do you just I, take I kind of try to avoid it because I'm always afraid it's going to make me sad. If anything, our nostalgia audits have been pretty successful, I think. Yeah, overall. I mean, I would, I would only do it on something that I was like pretty sure. I was still going to love. So, um, I grew up with this movie. I, I loved it from a young age. I did do multiple nostalgia audits on it. Be like, is this a good movie? Because I, over the years, especially in the Dissolve crowd, I, I ran into a lot of people that really hated this movie and resented it. <laughs> fucking, fucking hate this movie. And still thought it was somehow it. sadistic or mean or cruel or yada it's yada. extremely sadistic. He spends 20 minutes just beating adult men in the face. Yeah, it's and it's <laughs> a feature, not a bug. Um, so that also the big thing that I connected with here was that this was Kevin was this like blonde child that was trying to grow up way too fast because he was the youngest member of his family in the Chicago suburbs. Like the actual home alone house is probably 30 minutes from where I grew up. I identified with like all these specific aspects and they clearly they, they did shoot in the Chicago suburbs and there's a lot of like weird specificities like the the metro train lines and the way everything looks and the way the snow falls and, and yada yada. That that was why I connected with this movie on an early level, uh, on an intense level. And then but yet over the years, I grew like more skeptical of it. And now I've like come back around to embrace sentimentality because I, I had gone through my wilderness of like cynical years. And now like movies like Home Alone are so much more important to me. And before I want to get back to the uh, yeah, why some people fucking hate this movie. But Ethan, I guess I don't know if you have siblings or what your birth order is. Like, did you? But you were a little closer to my age than um, than Peter. So, like, when did this movie come out for you? Was it a huge thing you were aware of? And like, did you end up identifying with Kevin? So I I find this maybe the most fascinating aspect of this movie is is really extra textual. So I was I was four when this came out and. 
I was shocked to discover that today because this was the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. I was probably like seven or eight, like home alone had this incredible staying power as a phenomenon. Like I just, I remember the iconography, like I, I I knew of this poster, like it's probably like a pre memory memory for me. Like I have never lived in a world without, Knowing what Macaulay Culkin screaming with his hands on his face looks like. <laughs> and, yeah, it's like primal at a certain level. I rewatched the trailer and I remembered every beat of the trailer. But I don't think I got around to watching it for, for many years. I think it, it came into my life probably when I was like five. I, I think I just had it marked as that's a scary movie because it's like a home invasion movie about children. And... So I, I don't think I got around to watching it until I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade. Oh, wow. And I, I got chicken pox. And my sister and I both had chicken pox one Christmas. And my mom went to the store and rented uh, Home Alone and uh, Lost in New York. And we just watched them back to back. And so to, to me, it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I guess I grew up with it as, as kind of a Lord of the Rings. Like, oh, that's, that's just one sort of epic story. <laughs> Uh, and, and I just, I, I think I didn't necessarily identify with Kevin. Um, I, I'm, I'm the older of two and, you know, so the whole huge crazy family thing didn't really resonate for me. I just, I, I just remember thinking it was a, just the, the best movie I'd ever seen. I mean, this movie is, is so dialed in to, uh, to what, to what matters to a kid and, and, and how it feels to be a kid. Like I was saying about it coming from Kevin's perspective and, and can I sort of give you my grand unified theory on this movie? Yeah, let's do and, that. And then let's get into why some people fucking hate it. So what really struck me this time, again, I don't think I've watched it since I was, I mean, maybe, maybe this was my second time ever watching it in full for all I know. Did you get the chicken pox again to really, I you got it. shingles this time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get adult chicken pox, really close the circle. What I find really sort of, just admirable and impressive and, and great about this is the dumber version of this movie. And I, I brought up blank check earlier. Uh, the blank check version of this movie would go all in on like, wouldn't it be fucking awesome? Like if you had the house to yourself and this movie does that for like 20 minutes and yeah. then, <laughs> yeah. and then it really digs in on like, no, this would be sad and scary. Like this is not really a, like the wish fulfillment element of the movie is not that he's home alone. Watching it this time, I was thinking, like, God, how does the robbers thing really, like, integrate with the story? Is it kind of, like, just clunky and, and hat on a hat? And then I realized it's because the actual wish fulfillment element needs to be that Kevin is defending his home. Like, that's that's the crazy, goofy fantasy part is this kid turns into Rambo. Because they're selling you on this idea that, like, oh, it's it's wish fulfillment of what would it be like if you were home alone? And the answer is it would be terrible. <laughs> Yeah, terrifying and and sad. And you have to go through so much personal growth and legitimate mortal danger because of the the scenario that gets laid out. You'd realize how little you know about how to keep yourself alive. And that's why Lost in New York pisses me off, frankly, having just watched them back to back again, is it does the exact opposite. That's that's a whole movie of like, wouldn't this be awesome if you had your dad's credit card and just ordered room service? Like, this this movie has this emotional verisimilitude that I just, I... And he has to figure out how to get money. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't just have the unlimited funds. He's like, well, how would I get money? And it is kind of, like, I think what this taps into very well, the part that really I did relate to, is, like, 
the stuff that he wants to do when he's home alone is probably what I would have wanted to do at seven. It's like, I'm going to eat whatever I want for dinner. I'm going to jump on a couple beds. I'm going to watch movies that my parents say I can't watch. Uh, I'm out of ideas. Like, that's what I do. Like, that's, my, that's, my, my that, wife, yeah. My wife has overnight shifts at the hospital once or twice a week. And that's, I still like, true. eat stuff I shouldn't eat and watch movies I shouldn't watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, if, yeah, if I have a night to myself, I'm usually ordering a pizza. Yeah. Um, Jumping on the bed and um, does and the bed also a movie. have the pizza on it? Yep, I, I imagine the, the pizza. pizza bouncing with you at this equal height. Yeah, and you you play a movie uh, when the pizza gets delivered, and because your pizza guy is uh, a person with an IQ in the single digits, he can't recognize that it's a movie. He's <laughs> yep, he thinks it's that. He thinks except except I play the fault in our stars, so the pizza guy runs away really sad. Yeah, um, that is the only scene in the movie that i really have a problem i have a problem with because i'm like because now that i I, i've gotten older i'm like being a delivery guy is like a lot of work like that's a hard job um and you don't you you have to balance like the cost in your card your actual payment whatever yeah 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 yeah. and like the idea of kevin terrorizing a uh, pizza delivery guy into abandoning his pizza is like a little money he gets money he just doesn't get a good tip he gives him the money and Um, he runs away believing he's being shot with a tommy gun (laughs) (laughs) yeah at least he uses fireworks for marv but that's actually the perfect transition to why uh i've heard a lot of criticism about this movie that this is a movie about um an upper class kid torturing uh working class or poor people yeah i agree that is my exact reaction and i'm sorry i'm I'm sure i'm misrepresenting it a little bit no i've read i've read dozens of these things they all come down to we all are on the same page the working class in america gets shit on and needs to be properly compensated needs to have public health care access needs to like we agree on all the political facets of that but for some fucking reason people feel like a Kevin McAllister is like this icon to 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 take down in in uh, this cultural conversation, and I never yeah. have understood it. It's so exhausting. He is a child, like, and also Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, like, they, they are not like scrounging for food. They're not the fucking bicycle thieves. No, like they they are. And once they found out, find out this kid's been tricking them, they want to actively hurt and scare the kid. Like their goal is to down- murder him. Yeah, they, by well, the end of it, they want to kill this kid. Think about how how serious they are when they finally get Kevin on the hook, literally. Uh, and they're like, "We're gonna bite off all your fingers, and we're gonna beat the fuck out of you." Like they're like they they would go into way worse detail and probably do those actions if the South Bend, South Bend shovel slayer did not step in and and yeah. and fix the situation with a shovel. Hey, yeah, how stand many, your ground I, with a shovel. Listen, boys, we gotta slow down here because I have this is the first time hearing of this. Are we are we positing here that? Okay, a couple things. <laughs> yeah. That burglars are heroes of the working class? <laughs> well, I think so. No, I first of all, we are not positing, but I have read essays and I've heard people's opinion. I don't know I how much to. of it is multiple, somewhat multiple. tongue in. I, I've heard some people that are very sincere and earnest with this opinion. Uh, and then some people that I'm not sure if they're just like, yeah, that's why I hate it because it's an attack on the working class or something like that. The the thing I've seen positive is that not that Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are like down on their luck just trying to scrounge for a dollar and this rich asshole beats them down. Uh, but that like 
that we are to hate and dislike these people that are like probably products of their environment or that some some social structure has let them down to become it's a these kind of career criminals kids movie this movie yeah is a i know fucking cartoon it is it's a live Pardon action me. cartoon I'm sorry <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. like getting mad at the Roadrunner for like, well, if only the World Wildlife Federation would have stepped in and really saved his habitat, yeah. and wouldn't have to go and fight it's, for the the foods. fact that they survive everything it means that the only thing that happens when the cops throw them in the back of the the squad car is Joe Pesci's like, "Don't touch the top of my head; it's a little sensitive." Implies that this is a live action cartoon. There are multiple articles that are like, if this happened in real life. This is exactly when Daniel Stern would die. This is exactly when uh, when Joe Pesci would die. And you have to blame some of the weird Home Alone hatred on the sequel, which is way more brutal. I kind of like the sequel's finale, though. Like, I'm not going to lie. The I don't hate the sequel, but it is very fun to talk about. It is. This movie is all about setting – both movies, ultimately, are all about setting up cool traps. And, um, yeah, and mouse traps the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and both <laughs> deliver very well on their cool booby trap uh, premise. The first one has a much more realistic and down-to-earth and uh, relatable plot getting there. But the second one, even though it's a lot of stupid garbage and Rob Snyder for some reason, like, at the end, it still delivers on some good traps. So I am pro-traps, and I am pro-the Home Alone finales, both of them. Yeah, I, I just got very upset, and I need to find a way to de-escalate my <laughs> So I, I understand. I understand. So let's let's clarify a few things really quickly, just to get through this fast. If your hatred is because you don't like Macaulay Culkin, that's like a weird, like, subjective thing. Macaulay that you need Culkin to probably... is a little boy? You're yeah, you need to, to hate little children. Yeah, you probably just need to sort that out. He's he's one of the most famously charming child actors that ever has been, and like he's the good he, son. Yeah, he, he's a very good son. He's one of the best. If you don't like this movie, yeah, just watch the Good Son, and you're getting the Home Alone that you always <laughs> wanted, I guess. And also, um, it's yeah. fine. Like if this if this is like a Goonie situation that like I saw this as a kid, I don't know if I watch this for the first time if I would be as enamored or enjoyed as much as I do. Like, obviously this is a little bit of a nostalgia pick, but it's fine. But like to watch this and go like, this is a direct attack on my gun communism. Well, something. with the Goonies, I liked it as a kid. And then I watched it when I was older and I was like, oh yeah, this is not good. Oh, see, honestly, I didn't see it. I didn't see it until I was 16. And I'm like, no, thanks. Same. Yeah. Actually, I, I will go to bat for home alone as a good capital G capital M good movie. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Honestly, the something that I was just so dialed into this time is it it needs it needs us to buy in on just the idea that this kid could conceivably be left and it just so painstakingly goes through and it sets it up and so by the time they have left him you're like yeah in the reality of this movie this totally makes sense. This is this is just one of the most like ruthlessly functional screenplays. It's like Hitchcock to comedy. It's so weird how well they set up, like, a uh, tree branch falls on this, which knocks out the power. It takes them a few days to get the power back. The family calls as soon as they realize, which is when they land in France, which means, you know, they can't reach the house yet. Like, you're right. All the pieces are there, and no piece is there for no reason. But it's it's all just so graceful, and you're not you're not recognizing as it goes along what's the way you're being manipulated i mean everything that happens yeah. is is serving the story uh 
you're you're lost in the actual sort of performances and the jokes and the the world that it it creates and so you don't notice until he is home alone like oh that's why all that happened that's why that happened having joe pesci in the movie for the first there's so much legwork in the first five minutes like i was i was trying to write it down because now i was noticing how much i had been manipulated as you said ethan like they're like uh, did you did Kevin? Did you use Mike Lou gun? Kevin, did you pick up your micro machines? They show old man Marley. They're talking. They're all talking about the bad movie that Uncle Frank let him watch that you don't get to see, but then it relates to it later. They're like they show the spider. They talk about how he's not able to do anything for themselves. They say he's scared to go down in the basement. Like the amount of stuff they set up in the first ten minutes that are going to um, kind of propel where the story goes and all the little bits and pieces make sense so they're not out of nowhere is genius and the other thing that i never recognized before that's i think completely genius about the screenplay is that when kevin starts to realize he needs to be an adult like he doesn't just pretend to be an adult he decides that my parents have disappeared i need to now just be an adult and where what behavior does he start uh, exhibiting? Not just the, you know, I use shaving cream and aftershave and I burn my face. When he's out there talking to people, he's talking about, like, dental facts. He's talking about, like, does this toothbrush FDA approved? He's talking about all shit that he learned from TV and commercials. And that is such a brilliant uh, addition that I never I never got before because what else is it to a seven-year-old of thinking of being adult is like where he sees adults. Well, he doesn't see much adults on kids TV shows that he's watching or movies because those feature kids. So everything that he knows about adulthood is from the commercials in between those that would feature adults talking about quote unquote adult things. And that's brilliant. And it's so subtle and it's so hidden in there. But like the idea that John Hughes was like, how would a seven year old think to be an adult? Oh, from the commercials he watches is amazing. Yeah, hot take. John Hughes, good screenwriter. <laughs> John, I, I think yeah. that there's been a backlash against... Okay, so the reason that this movie, I think, was uh, lambasted has a lot to do with its associations with Chris Columbus and John Hughes, who are two filmmakers that have had backlashes against them. Uh, John Hughes, a lot less understandable. I mean, uh, oh, Pretty I in disagree. Pink and Breakfast, in, uh, uh, Breakfast Club both have, like large social problems that like need to be sorted out but i don't think it's worth so let me just say when i say john hughes is a good screenwriter i mean he is super like functional at at creating a movie that just like works on that sort of the pieces are there for a reason he never throws something in just for you know a quick shock a quick laugh like uncle buck is one of the most like perfect comedy scripts in terms of like taking someone who's like a fuck up at the beginning but kind of lovable and then taking you through the movie as he goes through growth and other people's growth is attached to his growth and it's like it's like a movie about life which is what movies are supposed to be um now this does like planes trains and automobiles does that perfectly too yes and and the the subject matter of some of these movies is now seems extremely questionable and i don't think that's you know something to be glossed over Oh, no, 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 no. I, I definitely think that especially in Pretty in Pink and uh, Breakfast Club have big social issues that are much bigger than what we want to get into today. I understand why people would bounce off of that. Um, Chris Columbus, the fact that his latter movies were so bad. 
Um, what, like Rent? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rent and Pixels and oh, I Love You, Beth Cooper, Christmas with the Cranks, uh, by Centennial Man, Stepmom. I, I kind of like the first two Harry Potter Why movies. Why do you know how many bad... You just threw out the most movies, insane and varied screen the, the credits I've ever heard. He did musicals. He did big fantasy epics. He did, uh, you know, low comedies. And then All bad. Like, and Christmas with the, with the Cranks did, uh, did like, almost him returning to the, the Home Alone area. Um, and Sorry, did, I think, he, did he direct that or just produce it? He just wrote and produced it, oh, um, okay. Christmas at the Crank. So, uh, and I, I kind of like the first two Harry on a Potter John movies. Grisham novel, Christmas. Yeah, it, Christmas at the Cranks is a baffling movie, <laughs> and I don't know where we're gonna fit it in because we're not gonna do it on the show. But, um, but the point is, the point is, he did a lot of movies that people don't like later in his career. I like the first two Harry Potter movies, um, and I think that people like retroactively worked backwards and said like his schmaltzy bullshit ruined all these movies. It also ruined these movies that worked, and I want to highlight real quickly like yes, he wrote The Goonies, which sucks. He also yeah. wrote Gremlin. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not the worst, but he also wrote uh, Gremlins, which is and he fucking hated Gremlins too. Yeah, yeah, he's he's an interesting character because like he wrote one of the best move, the best like horror comedies of all time. I will say like maybe the best horror comedy of all time uh, with Gremlins, and then he like weirdly was against Gremlins too, which made him seem really petty. Uh, he also did Adventures in Babysitting, which I don't know if that's a movie that outside the Chicago area is a thing. Is that a thing for you guys at all? I mean, I'm familiar with it. I don't think I've I haven't seen it. Seen it. Yeah, yeah it, it's a uh, it's a movie that we grew up with, similar to uh, Home Alone. Um, he also wrote Little Nemo, um, Adventures oh, in Sleep, Slumberland. That movie, yeah, it's a wonderful movie. So like, Chris Columbus has had a weird career where most of the good movies were before nineteen ninety three or nineteen ninety three and earlier. Um, and then you he did kept... Mrs. Doubtfire too. Yeah, right? that was nineteen ninety three. That, that that's what I'm cut. I'm making okay. the cutoff point. Chris Columbus has had a very mixed career. John Hughes has also had a very mixed career. And I think that the one thing that people are backlashing against in that, not to speak for other people, but is is, uh, the schmaltzy sentimentality of it. And I... Knowing what I know about you guys, like, I think you guys are pretty comfortable with the the sentiment and the sweetness uh, and the, the lack of cynicism that comes with a lot of these movies. But particularly Home Alone in this specific case. Well, cynicism is an interesting word because there's there's no more awful quality in a movie. I mean, sincerity is is great. Like sh- schmaltziness is almost a kind of cynicism when it's when it's done wrong. Like sincerity yeah. when it doesn't seem things. sincere. Yes, yeah. it, it's the worst because yeah. it's it's sincerity for cynical reasons, right. which there's is no what such- Christmas or the Kings cranks is. There's no such thing as as sincere schmaltz, or it wouldn't be schmaltz. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, that's what Christmas with the Cranks is, is that it's um, schmaltzy um, because of its insincerity. And well, it's, it's what a lot of Christmas movies are. I mean, it's, it's a very easy genre to just sort of cash in on because you got all that iconography right there and, and you just – And there's like one that comes out a year. Yeah. Right? So they're like, this, like is, this will be the Christmas movie that will make money. And that's, it, it, and that's what they put all their money into. It's weird that this movie features the Grinch right in it. Not that we're doing it, but because 
it's not weird that it features the Grinch in it because there's not that many Christmas classics that like actually have stood the test of time and people still give a shit about like on a mass scale. Everyone has their own weird little pick that they're like, oh, this is my Christmas classic. For me, it's the Tales from the Crypt. Uh <laughs> The Tales from the Crypt episode where they, uh, the, with the, the, I think it's the first episode. It's, it's a, uh, Robert Zemeckis killer Santa story. And it's amazing. A lot of people think of this as like an action movie, but mine, you guys are going to be a little skeptical, but hear me out. Don't okay, I kind of think man. Die I'm Hard is like a oh, Christmas movie. I knew you were going to blow my mind. I'm freaking out. I got it. <laughs> oh, I am home. Shit. That's how Shit. freaked out I am. Let me, let me, let me walk you through it. A, takes place at Christmas. B, there's <laughs> snow. Got it. Christmas movie. You just, it's just, if you're going to watch a Christmas movie, you are, you are making a tacit agreement to accept a certain amount of bullshit because yeah. a lot of Christmas is bullshit in, in the most, you know, sort of in the best possible way. Like we have yes. made a social uh, contract to just embrace bullshit <laughs> for a month out of the year. I should not say we. I mean, that's a very, uh, you know, sort of Christian-focused thing to say. Although, yeah. You know, in America, the, it's, it's become a more secular sort of holiday. Yeah, but like Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, like the, the other major holidays of the the time of year also have to do with gift giving and also have to do with this sort of idea of the idea of saying like, yes, yes, we've had a lot of bullshit this year. Let's have a moment where we can just embrace like pureness. Like let's give, I want to give a little bit more than I want to. I want to give to charity. I want to give presents to people that I, you know, whatever I want to uh, take time out to do, um, to do charitable works or make food for people. Like the entire time of year is kind of based on this weird I social see contract. people I fucking hate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it, the family thing where you're like, yeah. I hate you, but we are agreeing. <laughs> Here's a present. <laughs> we're agreeing that we are friends for the next two weeks and it's going to be great. Um, the other 50 weeks of the year, if you contact me, I will ignore you. Um, so you, you just created, uh, Pete just, Pete just set me up to sound like a real bad guy for a second. Cause I said Christmas is bullshit and you were like, yeah, like giving to charity. So my, no, no, my, I, I'm, I'm saying like, we've, we've kind of, the, 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 I'm not trying to make you sound like an asshole, no, but I, I'm saying I just, like, I, yeah. I want to expound on my theory briefly. Yes. Yes. Please do. Which is, yeah. Okay. So you think Christmas is bullshit. Go ahead. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's this <laughs> yeah, you set think of charity's traditions. bullshit. Yeah, it's fine. Exactly. It's yeah, the yeah, set of traditions where, where so much of the iconography is intentionally gaudy and the songs yes. are not great. <laughs> yeah. In the We've agreed that cheesiness is great. Everyone agrees yeah. that cheesiness is great for a month. Yeah, we just get yeah, to embrace Everyone wears it shitty like, sweaters. Yeah. And, and there's and lights. These, these things are fun and they remind us of being little kids and we can just just put the bullshit <laughs> we can put the bullshit aside to enjoy the bullshit i i agree yeah we the, the the um letting go of your ego a little bit and uh sort of like letting loose and sort of relaxing into the sort of holiday spirit is like sort of one of the ideals and like home alone embraces that but i don't think in an irresponsible or a schmaltzy or a cheap way I think that Home Alone embraces that thing that we're talking about where you're like trying to be a higher, better person for a little bit, you're trying to give more of yourself than you're comfortable with, you're trying to forgive your neighbors, be a better friend, be a better partner, yada, yada. 
Um, and Hamon embraces that idea, whether it's complete bullshit or not, it's real if it makes you a better person. Well, so here's here's an interesting way to bring it back around to the movie for a minute. So much of the lesson is tied up in the neighbor who has, you know, there's this creepy neighbor next door. The kids all believe he's a murderer. And then what we find out in, in what was legitimately a mind-blowing twist when I was a little kid, is he's, <laughs> he's actually a, a nice and normal man, even though he has a beard. <laughs> but this is where the moral of the movie kind of comes in, which is yeah, like, yeah. no matter how much your family's pissing you off at any given moment, it's not worth... Uh, writing them off entirely, which is, you know, th- that's something that resonates for me. I've got family members who have severed ties with other branches of the family. And that's, you can kind of lose that that is the moral of the movie. And this is something that I found really interesting towards the end of it this time is with about five minutes left, I was like, oh, from Kevin's perspective, this is a movie about a kid who vaporized his parents. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. not a movie about a kid separated from his parents. For the entire runtime, he believes his family have been raptured. Uh, yeah, he Dr. Manhattan them into yeah. it's like, it's like a personal The Leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> right, which is, it, it, it makes the movie a lot sadder and scarier, and it's it's not really focused on all that. <laughs> but, as a, but as a kid, I feel like the movie gives you just enough time to, I, I almost feel like that 20-minute period where he's just embracing it is for children to really, like, uh, enjoy that, like, fantasy and sort of revel in the fantasy for a little bit and then it immediately goes into this arc about responsibility and bravery and and, you know standing up for yourself as you know an adult or yada yada and i do like that it revels a little bit and then it immediately goes into like let's get kevin some growth here because macaulay culkin is a great actor and he was and he's very game like he he's he's willing to make those like long speeches that otherwise would come off as as a false in a lesser kid actor. I mean, listen, all all of the Culkin acting children are are some of the most fascinating performers in American cinema. And yes, I think he can get a little bit lost, but like especially because because he's sort of semi retired and and his brothers kind of didn't come into their own until they were a little older. Each one of these these uh, children is is well, men now is such an arresting presence on screen from him as a little kid yeah. to, to Kieran now. Kieran is fuller. Well, he, Kieran's in this movie. He is. Yeah. He's so good. <laughs> the way he just kind of like evilly looks at Kevin yeah. is pretty potent. It's, it's kind of evil and it's kind of just like, hey, I'm fuller and I pissed the bed. That's what I do. What are you going <laughs> to that, do? <laughs> that's why the movie is from Kevin's perspective because right. he's like, he's, he's like, hey, guess what, buddy? I piss a lot. Yeah, it's it's sort of a scorpion and the frog situation. It's like you know, it, it, it is in my nature to piss the bed. What do you think was going to happen if you got in bed? Yeah, I am fuller. What I do is I piss. So I know that we're we're running out of time, and I want to get to some more positive things. But the one thing I kind of want to hit on now, as long as we kind of talked about Christmas, and it's going to be a theme throughout this, is is that the the flip side of this coin that we talked about about how smaltzy and it's about reaching out to your family, even if you have disagreements. And this is the part I really understand and I feel like this group gets left out is that if you have like really bad memories attached to Christmas or things that your family did that are like, you know, not the sort of thing you're like, hey, we kind of disagree on some political stuff, but let's get together for the holidays. I also understand why all of this stuff is so like 
omnipresent and terrible for you because no one lets you forget what type of season it is. No one lets you forget what the expectation of you as a person is or, or the, the cultural expectation of the season. And so I – I love Christmas. I really do. I have a lot of fond memories attached to it. But this is also like a very good reminder that like if you don't, it is very understandable why this is a – why there's such thing as like Christmas seasonal depression and why this is absolutely miserable for you because the world does not let you forget both that it's Christmas but also like – Hey, every one of these movies is about reach out to your family and make amends. And you know what? Sometimes that's not uh, really something that uh, applies to you, depending on your circumstances. Yeah. And if, if you have chosen for any legitimate reason to sever ties with your family, then that, that speech from the neighbor in the yeah. church was like, well, I, I chose to sever ties with my family and I have grown old and sad and I will now die. It's, you know, that, that I can see yeah. that being extremely confusing and triggering, yeah. of course. I, I, com- I agree. I think it's it's worth pointing out because yes, family just because they're family doesn't mean they're decent, honest people. But the movie lays out a dramatic situation that's from Kevin's perspective. We understand all of the uh, the dramatic motivations for why Kevin would say that he hopes his family disappears, and we understand at the beginning of the movie and we understand at the end of the movie that they're good parents. They're just flawed people that are trying. Hopefully, hope maybe their best. I don't know. And I think it was just a worth a good time to point yes. out because we're going to spend four weeks talking about how much Peter and I love Christmas. And the last thing we want to give the impression of is like if you are someone who doesn't like Christmas, like we are not those people like who doesn't love Christmas? Like a lot of people have some very legitimate reasons for hating this time of year. Uh, we see you. And uh, even though we have more positive feelings about it and that's why we love doing these Christmas theme months, we, we get it. We Our experience is not universal. And even for me, it's you know, there's there are loaded elements to it because life is 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 complex. Um, but yeah, I, I completely yep. understand and, and agree with you guys. And so let's let's talk about all the things we love about this movie. Because I know Ethan, uh, we're we're a little rushed from time. I I don't want to get into a lot of the little fun moments uh, that that we saw in this movie that we want to get to. There is something I'd really love to highlight. I've been holding on to this for about an hour. We already took a bathroom break, but yeah. you can go again. <laughs> no. <laughs> so talking about the, the the issue of Kevin's parents, um, I, as I posted in a tweet after watching this movie, I was very dialed in on Catherine O'Hara this uh, time because I suddenly kind of had a crush <laughs> on the mom. But I think Catherine O'Hara's performance in this is is really, really special. And there's a moment that I just think really punctures the idea that these are just blanket bad parents. Which is when she's sending him up into the attic uh, in the movie. At the beginning of the movie, Kevin has this this sort of meltdown and is he needs a timeout. And his mom's sending him up to the attic and he says, uh, you know, I, I wish I didn't even have a family. I wish you were gone. And she really lingers in that moment as she processes what he's said and figures out how to respond to it in a way that I really recognized as a parent where he has said this thing that she finds deeply shocking and hurtful. And she is just taking that moment to center herself and respond in a way. I think she says something like, well, you know, you don't mean that. And if it actually happened, you'd be really sad. And I don't know if Catherine O'Hara has kids or if, if, you know, that was just something she found in herself as, as an actress, but that one moment, which I now am really going into micro detail on sells me on the whole idea of, of, her 
uh, as a parent and, and needing to get back to him through the whole movie. And, and in Lost in New York, they're garbage parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they're, 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 they're total cartoons and it's, it's all out the window. But in this one, I don't know. It, it works for me. I agree. There's a, there's a, there's a beauty in the way that Catherine O'Hara underplays her hurt that makes you later give her more allowances for her negligence or, you know, the way she acts crazy trying to make up for that negligence. That, that, uh, nailing that hurt early on where you can see in her eyes, she's like, this fucked with me and it fucks with me a lot. And I'm going to react in a way that is a little bit more adult because I'm supposed to be the big boy here, the big girl here. Um, uh, uh, And it reminded me of my mom because like my mom also had those things. Her mom's a very sensitive woman, but she also like knew how to like take a moment and just be like process it. And like, I don't have, I'm very lucky. I don't have a lot of memories of my mom saying like awful shit to me as a kid. Um, very, very lucky at that point. And she she did a similar thing that my mom does where she's like, yeah, that would that would be very bad. Um, you don't want that. Um, you don't wish that we actually disappeared. And then uh, through a trickery of fate, it happens. Catherine O'Hara is not punishing Kevin for this weird slight that he threw out when he was pissed off. Well, it's the, it's the most serious thing that he says. Um, it's the only time she doesn't lash out. Right. Because the rest of it is Kevin, go over here. Kevin, go over here. And she does stop. She thinks about what she says, what he said. And then uh, actually, I think you're missing the first thing that she said, which I think is very important, where she says, you don't really believe that, do you? Which is uh, both a centering thing, but also like a very common technique, which is you said this thing. I'm going to put it back on you to respond to see if you want to change your answer. And then when he repeats it again. That's when she responds that way. So it really is this great moment where she stops and is quiet and lets him and her reflect on the moment and let it sit there a little bit, hoping that he'll move on from it. It's true. This this one moment, for as embarrassed as I felt suddenly going into micro detail on it, this this is the moment that needs to work for the movie to work on an emotional level. Yep. It, it does. It totally works. And it's also yeah. a moment that um, is more understandable because of the number, the sheer wealth of children that are in this house like you understand the stress that they're under and why they need to rely on like an oldest sibling to count heads and like make sure everyone's going where they are because they're effectively not just the adults of their own family they're like the adults of all the other families because like the uncle the uncle is just like an awful asshole he's the best he is just a just a worse person although how many times have you guys said in your life now, look what you did, you little jerk? I <laughs> because... <laughs> and I don't I don't think I don't think that Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern in any way qualify as sympathetic villains, sympathetic antagonists. Uh, no, if anything, I love how much fucking Daniel Stern loves being a bad guy. Like he <laughs> loves it. And it's it's, it, it's an infectious enthusiasm. He's not stealing shit just to steal shit and like make money off of it. Fucking up their house because he genuinely thinks <laughs> it will hurt people, and then he floods their houses. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing we need to talk about before we wrap up is the most welcome present in the movie at the time that you need a welcome present. Who also has the funniest monologue in the movie? That's John Candy. Yes, the Polka King of Chicago or whatever. The Polka King of Kenosha. What polka, 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 Polka. 
Uh, very, yeah, a very Midwestern thing, which I, I could not have recognized as a child, but now seeing it, I'm like, oh yeah, Poke Kings, that is definitely a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. As, a, as a Chicagoan, um, they... I recognize so much of myself in this movie and the John Candy type, even though him and Catherine O'Hara are both Canadians, uh, SCTV alums, and like this was sort of like a weird reunion for them. And it was also like uh, uh, John Hughes bringing back uh, John Candy because he loved working with him on Uncle Buck. And at this point, John Candy was like a star, yada, yada, all of that. But also like because of how many Polish people there are in the Chicagoland area that that like oh yeah he's he's just like a polka king these guys are polka bombs like that that <laughs> resonated with me a lot he also the the monologue he tells about leaving his kid at the funeral parlor is the funniest part of this movie uh, <laughs> it, it feels improvised as an adult where he's like he's like yeah it does like you know six seven weeks later when he was when he was talking again finally he was fine kids are resilient yeah because he's so good at burying punchlines and like it it, it it's not that you need to be paying attention because John Candy is just naturally funny. Like, you're going to be getting a laugh every couple lines anyways. It's just that John Candy is, like, such a gifted comic performer where he can go so huge, but he also can, like, go right down in the dirt and, like, bury something. And you're like, oh, wait, I caught that. Um, and it, it's uh, the only problem with this movie, really, is that there's not enough John Candy. Yeah, it's the yeah. Perfect, there's the perfect amount. <laughs> any any more it might undo <laughs> yeah it might be uh, at, at that point you're like wait why are we following kevin why aren't we following john candy uh it is weird when john candy then turns around the the polka truck and breaks into the house after they go <laughs> grocery shopping. It, is, it is weird also because like after planes trains and automobiles you're like john candy kind of deserves to like be home with a family right now like he doesn't need to be on the road uh so yeah what are your guys's final thoughts uh, my my final thought is that I would not have necessarily expected this going into this movie, certainly, and, and maybe not even going into this podcast, but I have kind of come around to just really thinking this is a just a good movie, <laughs> like talking about the, the John Candy stuff and, you know, it creates this this richer sort of world that the movie exists in and and the sort of the way the themes are built and the the um just like i say this this really impressive screenplay it's not just like oh a nostalgia check or anything i, I think this is just a solid movie and, and that's really this was was cool to get to do so thank you guys yeah i'm really glad that we got to have another appreciator of the movie on and i apologize to our listeners that hate home alone but you're just going to have to yell at me, not on mic. Um, but I'm sorry I screamed at you yeah. at one point, all of you listeners. I got very upset. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize. I should have controlled my emotions. You guys um, are a bunch of regular Marvs. <laughs> so what I'll say here is there's a line in the movie that unlocks the whole thing for me. And it's, uh, I'm the only one getting dumped on. It's what Kevin says. And it unlocked the movie for me because that reminded me of me as a kid that as the youngest child of four and thinking that like my whole family was just shitting on me all the time. Anytime that they were like telling me that something that I was doing was wrong or trying to guide me in any way, like no matter what, I just felt like I was being pushed around and bullied. This movie is like a very interesting story because it's like basically trying to guide kids through their anger saying like yes you can 
you can like lash out and you can have your moment of revelry and enjoy yourself. But eventually you're going to have to take responsibility for what you've done. And eventually you're going to have to act like a big kid. And yes, there's a bunch of shit in this movie that still resonates with me as an adult. But that was the one thing that I think this movie uh, helped instill in me as a kid. Like, yeah, you're a kid. Seems like everyone's stepping on you all the time. But eventually, yep. you're just going to have to figure your shit out. And uh, that was that was really what 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 stuck with me this time. The the, the cleverness. Of, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the cleverness of, of Kevin and the funness of of his gags. I understand can seem sadistic to some people like Ethan and I briefly touched on. This is a live action cartoon. It's these people walk out of this largely unscathed. They have a burnt. I think Joe Pesci, all he does is loses his cap, uh, gets a burned scalp and gets arrested. And the movie is about horrible people willing to murder a child purely based off of pride and greed and a child managing to keep up with them almost on a level of like an O. Henry story. Um <laughs> And I think that that's a totally respectable thing. You take actual villains and then you expect the kid to just get stomped like it's a horror movie. But instead, the joke and the fun part is that the kid can keep up. And that is why this movie still fucking works. Aaron, what are your final thoughts on this? Yeah, movie? that's 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 beautiful. That's perfect. Um, it, it is so interesting to hear your perspective just because a lot of the the part about like realizing what it's like to kind of be Kevin in a in a in certain ways it's just something that never really you know I definitely felt like beat down and I felt like my parents just didn't understand as uh, Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff would say but I didn't Poets. have that other like level of siblings that were kind of contributing to it it was just kind of me against my parents uh, in a lot of ways which is obviously not Kevin's situation. So, you know, I didn't have that personal resonance, but here's what I found out about me at 35 and me at 7. I like traps. I like when people uh, <laughs> slip on traps. I like when when fire hits people's heads. I like, I like all sorts of traps. And you know what? There's just not that many movie with traps. You would think with the amount of budgets that movies have, they could have majestic, amazing traps. But at the end of the day, if you want traps in your movies – you either need to play a video game. Uh, that's a good way to get your trap. <laughs> trap is sorted they in. They love Most traps Super Mario, Zelda, Dark Souls. A lot of traps. But in real life, as in, in this case, I mean very specifically the movies, you got to go home alone one and two for all of your trap needs. So that's yeah. why I will say, in summation, traps. Yeah, traps. Ethan, thank you. Thank you for gifting us with that. What do you have to promote? Well, you know, I, I mentioned it at the beginning. Um, you can find my movie Westerver uh, on it's on it's it's on Amazon Prime now uh, to stream if you got a Prime subscription. And then, uh, yeah, BrightWallDarkRoom.com uh, is just a really unique uh, place on the internet. I think that I'm really excited now to be a little more involved in, and, and uh, I am working on some ideas, some some things we're going to be doing over there uh, next year. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. We love we love having you. Uh, we hope you come back many, many more times. Uh, yeah, so Peter, we have a couple more. We have uh, next week we have Nightmare Before Christmas with returning champion Morgan Rennes. 
Uh, and then we have It's a Wonderful Life with Casey James, who is someone I know in real life, who is a screenwriter uh, who writes horror movies and has sold a couple, as a matter of fact, to a few different production houses. And he has chosen to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, as it makes sense. Um, and then we are doing our Christmas classic, which will be How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Charlie Brown's Christmas. We haven't decided, but we're going to do a lot of different TV specials, and it'll kind of be like one of our Halloween special episodes. Especially Eppies. Especially Eppies. Yeah, the classic turn of phrase that no one finds uh, in any way annoying or grating on the ears. And with that, I wish you guys... People don't like special Eppies? Special <laughs> Eppies. Um, and with that, I wish you guys a happy Christmas season. And we will be back next week to continue the celebration. With Have a more... Good Bullshit talk em arounds. <laughs> Bullshit talk em arounds. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night! <laughs>